You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Sweden in Focus, the locals podcast looking back at the week's main news in Sweden. We're recording this on Thursday the 12th of May. Later on this week's show we'll examine why Sweden is getting tougher on immigration and to help us understand we've enlisted the help of Tove Hovemyr, a public policy expert at Sweden's Fores think tank. That's up a little bit later. Before that, we'll look at what Boris Johnson was doing in Sweden this week, how a translation error made national news, and why the Eurovision Song Contest is so enduringly popular in Sweden. I'm Paul O'Mahony, and I'm joined for today's podcast by James Savage here in Stockholm and Richard Orange and Becky Waterton in Malmö. Hello, everybody. Hello. 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 How has your week been? Interesting. There was a lot of interest in the Swedish media about Boris Johnson coming yesterday. So that took up quite a lot of my day trying to explain Britain and their NATO policy to uh, Swedish media. My mum sent me a message this morning saying, don't get too excited about Boris being in Sweden today, Becky. He always leaves the country on Wednesdays to avoid Prime Minister's questions. <laughs> and Richard, you've had, you've had an interesting week, I know. Tell us. Yeah, I, I bought some new snazzy roller skates because uh, my daughter's quite into it. <laughs> Malmo's got incredible skate facilities, so I decided to go to Stapelbeds Park and, and I broke my wrist in three places. No. <laughs> I was being very cautious, but this sort of young, sort of four foot high kind of meteor on a skateboard kind of whizzed in front of me and sent me flying and I landed and oh. it actually lifted my mood a bit somehow. I don't know why. Like somehow, <laughs> somehow, I, I, everyone I meet, I've got a little story to tell. Um, <laughs> ow, it hurts quite a lot. And uh, it just kind of makes everyday tasks slightly more challenging. I have been going to ceramics classes for a couple of weeks now and I got my first kind of bit of ceramics back on Monday and it was a little frog which now sits on my desk. So I, I've had a great oh. week looking at my little frog sitting on my desk. It's, a, it's really impressive actually. It's a, it's, um, it's a pretty excellent piece it hasn't of hasn't got a name yet. Frog. I just call him Groda. You need to put the Groda on the local Twitter account so that all our listeners can see it. I will publish that tweet on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> to coincide with no explanation and listen to our podcast if you want to find out why we're posting a picture of a ceramic frog. <laughs> like a teaser. The Social Democrats are expected to approve a NATO application this Sunday and with the opposition fully on board, it looks increasingly likely that Sweden will join the Transatlantic Defence Alliance. On last week's podcast, we talked about the Swedish and Finnish Prime Minister's joint visit to Berlin and this week, as we heard at the start, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson came up to Stockholm and Helsinki. What was the purpose of his visit? Basically, Boris Johnson came to Sweden to sign a security deal with Sweden, um, which lots of people are reading is to pr protect Sweden kind of in this grey area, in the grey zone between applying to NATO. If they do, oh, what a mystery. Maybe they won't apply. Who knows? They're obviously going to apply. So it's protecting this period between applying for NATO and then accession to NATO. But it's actually interesting. I was reading um, some commentary about this and there was yeah, Milena Britz, who is a researcher at the Swedish Defence University, was basically saying that this agreement is very similar to the security agreements that the EU have in the Lisbon Treaty. So she was kind of saying, this doesn't really have anything to do with NATO. It's just that 
when Brexit happened, we lost this support from the UK because they left the EU and they're not in the this treaty anymore. And this new document is essentially a copy of whatever we get under the EU rules. So it's not specifically anything to do with NATO, but it has the nice benefit of giving us a bit of scope if we were to be attacked by Russia that we could say, hey, Boris, can you help us out? I spoke to uh, Hans Wallmark, who was the moderate on the committee that created the report last night. I haven't yet written it up. But he was he was quite interesting because he made that point. He said, this is something we've been pushing for ever since Britain left the EU and, and haven't got. It's something that's long been on Sweden's wish list. And it's been slightly wrongly interpreted as, like you say, designed for that to fill that yeah. fill the space during that grey zone. It's filling in what, what, what Sweden lost from the UK when Brexit happened. And what Hans Wallmark said was that the UK is by far the most important defence military force in Europe. So to lose that for Sweden was really kind of worrying. Yeah. I think the French would have something to say about that. But um <laughs> but 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 yes this is this is this is clearly a replacement for European defence. But the timing is very significant given that Sweden is likely to apply to join NATO in the next you know, a few days, effectively, next few weeks. So, you know, yes, it's a replacement for European defence, but it's, it's deeply connected to the NATO question and it's deeply connected to Russia. And what he was saying was about sending a signal as much as anything else to the Russians to say that, look, don't mess with Sweden, don't mess with Finland, because they will be supported. They're not going to be on their own during this accession process. What did you think about the boat, the Harpsons Eakin? that Boris Johnson rode oh. Magdalene Anderson out in. I thought it was very stereotypical and very telling that Magdalene Anderson was wearing a life vest and Boris Johnson was not. Exactly. And he was rowing as well. He had the oars. <laughs> yeah. But I think that seems to be a tradition that the guest always rows. No, I've been going through all of the old things and, and Khrushchev rowed Target Irlander in 1964. So Khrushchev took the rowing position. But if you look over the history, it seems to be kind of random, whether it's the host or the probably whoever's the greater oarsman. <laughs> but I think that boat trip is is where Magdalene Anderson, because Boris quoted, or Boris Johnson, I should maybe say his full name, he quoted Magdalene Anderson in the press conference saying, yes, Magdalene Anderson, like you said on the lake, we are now in the same boat, both literally and metaphorically. So I think that must be, that must be where she had that conversation. This week, we're asking listeners to share your feedback about the podcast in a survey that you can find a link to in the episode description on your app. We'd be very grateful if you could take a couple of minutes to answer the questions and let us know what you think. Now, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, we chatted about the Christian Democrat leader Ebba Bush's explosive comments about how the police should have opened fire on demonstrators during the Easter riots. That story sailed back into the news this week due to a translation error. Can you tell us what the story is there, Becky? Yeah, so essentially the background behind this is that Radio Sweden have a number of news desks in different languages. Some of those news desks had mistranslated Ebba Bush's quote. So this was her quote saying, why were there not 100 injured Islamists rather than 100 injured police people? This whole We were talking about a few weeks ago, the whole you should be shooting people. Uh, quote, which is controversial anyway. But these news desks had translated it as why were police not shooting a hundred Muslims instead of Islamists, which obviously has a much different, especially when you're a news desk in Arabic, where a lot of the people listening to this um, this radio channel will be Muslims, telling them that the Christian Democrats want to shoot Muslims is a, is a slightly different message than want to shoot Islamists. So that's kind of the story behind this 
And, you know, Ebba Bush has said that she requested a meeting with Radio Sweden to kind of talk about this, and they said no, and now she's saying that she's going to boycott them before the election. And this isn't just Radio Sweden, this is, like, the whole of Sveria's radio, like, the public service broadcaster. If she carries out this kind of boycott, this means there won't be any radio interviews with Christian Democrats before the election in kind of protest against this, because she feels like they haven't done enough to to apologise for it. How is uh, Radio Sweden dealing with the fallout, James? Well, after a, bit of a, after a bit of a slow start in responding to the fallout, they've taken some measures now. So they now say they've gone through all the publications and they found errors in five out of 25 articles or radio reports. They say that most of the articles and radio reports on Radio Sweden, that's to say the, these foreign language services, were correct. The errors they found were in three languages. It was um, Arabic, Kurdish and Somalian. Um, but they say there were no systematic errors. It was just individual one-off errors. Um, The reasons were unintentional errors and translation difficulties and pressure of time and stress. So what they've said is they're going to strengthen the, the, the management training and they will use external expertise um, more often to avoid errors like this in the future. Richard, you wrote an opinion piece during the week about how Sweden has long sought to assimilate immigrants into Swedish culture rather than embracing multiculturalism. And this is sort of, sort of linked to, to this story. What prompted you to write the article and uh, what do you think are the main consequences of Sweden's approach? It's not. I don't think it's it's so much that they're sought to assimilate immigrants into Swedish culture. It's more that the sort of mainstream Swedish culture is so blind to the existence of other cultures or to the idea that people might want different things or might approach things differently, that there's a sort of massive total lack of curiosity towards other cultures and what they might be able to contribute. There's like, here's the Swedish system, you're here, get in and do it. The sort of society as a whole has never thought, well maybe these people could bring something new. Maybe we need to adapt this so that it better fits the way the people who've come to Sweden works. And what sparked it was my experience of working for Radio Sweden, where all this happened. So I was right across the corridor from the Arabic division and the Somali division. And they were all, you know, some really great journalists who had done some really good stuff back in their home countries before they came to Sweden. You know, they're cosmopolitan. A lot of them write books and novels. They're, they're, you know, a really interesting bunch of people. And what Sweden does with these people, rather than sending them out into their communities, which are kind of like a black hole for Sweden, nobody knows what what most people in the Arab-speaking parts of Sweden think. It's like it's opaque to us. These people could have been sent out there to get stories from the bottom up and report that back through Swedish radio, both to their own communities, but also to, to the rest of Sweden. We, we'd know what, what, what were the concerns and what were the, what were the problems being faced by Kurdish or Somali or Arab people. And we don't now. Instead, what Swedish radio does is makes them translate Iakot, which is the sort of standard news bulletin diet that everyone has to consume, is supposed to consume in Sweden. So they know what are the essential things. Oh, the social Sturilsson has come up with a new method of um, taking out wisdom teeth or something. You know, you know, it's, it's some really kind of solid, stodgy fare. And I just think it's a tremendous waste. And I think it's emblematic of the way Sweden has wasted the people who've come here and wasted their talents. Basically, Sweden, the Swedish system sees immigrants as low skilled labour and tries to feed them into the sort of incredible sort of sausage machine of this. And, uh, and if it doesn't work, they don't think there's anything wrong with the approach or, the, or that the system needs to be adapted. They just think that the input needs to be changed. We need more training, more education. And I just thought that the waste I saw at Radio Sweden is kind of emblematic of one of the problems with how Sweden's approached 
integration. Having said that, you know, I don't think integration in Sweden is a disaster. I mean, there's lots of people, there's lots of successes as well, but it, it could have been done so much better. I think a lot of this as well, you can you can see this in the Social Democrats saying we're going to fight failed integration. And I think that kind of, it's kind of an us versus them thing. Like, I think it would be much better if they were saying we're going to work together to solve the issue of failed integration. But the kind of, I don't like the kind of, we're going to fight integration. We're going to turn every stone to fight segregation. And it's like, maybe you don't need to fight it. Maybe you can talk to the people that you want to integrate and see what would help them integrate. Like, do they know what it is you expect them to do? Or are you just expecting them to kind of build, Let's, if we're going to use the a Swedish kind of stereotype, are you expecting them to build some IKEA furniture without having a manual? Like, maybe give them the manual and tell them what you expect them to do rather than just sitting them down with all the pieces and saying, yeah, why haven't you done this yet? Even if you leave the integration perspective, if you just look at it from a journalistic perspective, it would be so much more interesting to hear these journalists, to hear what they would find if they if, if, if they did their own reporting. I mean, this is no criticism, there's no general criticism of Eakort and, and Sveriges Radio because they, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great journalistic organisation as a whole. But, you know, but in these in these foreign language services, it's a bit of a missed opportunity. I mean, maybe we're, we're biased because we... Yeah, Sweden's news in English. We provide a service that gives relevant stories to people that speak English in Sweden. It's all picking relevant stories and figuring out which bits, okay, are people going to know what a bostadsrättföreningen is or should I add a little bit of context there? Is this story important for people? Maybe it's more important to cover this story on work permits, which is almost not featured in the Swedish news. But Richard, yeah, this article, your opinion piece, goes beyond this story and you make some observations on how the Swedish left and right view culture or view foreign cultures in general. Can you tell us what you say there? Yeah, I mean, I've got this. This is one of my bugbears. I mean, I've got this <laughs> I've got this feeling that in Swedish consensus ideology, which is sort of based around a sort of social democratic thing, that culture does not exist. There is no such thing as a Swedish culture. We're just rational. And the way Swedish society has been constructed is not a cultural artefact, it's just a, a sensible way of organising things. It's sensible to eat your dinner at 5.30 in the in the evening and then do some sport and to eat this sort of log on cuisine and not be extreme. And there's a sort of a lack of recognition that Sweden isn't quite an extreme country and that almost anyone, no one else in the world lives like that. People want to stay up late and, you know, party all night and not think about tomorrow and that this is a cultural thing. And I think part of the problems that Sweden's had with immigration is that Swedes don't realise they even have a culture or a lot of Swedes and so when they see people not doing the same things that a Swede would do they see it as just wrong <laughs> you know and and they don't understand that it's a cultural difference by the time you listen to this podcast, it'll either be just before this year's final of the Eurovision Song Contest gets underway or it will all be over and you will either be elated or deflated depending on whether or not you did surrender to its charms. But if you live in Sweden, you will find it hard to avoid because Eurovision is huge here. Can you give us a sense of how popular it is, Becky? It's exactly what you say. Eurovision is huge. Eurovision is so huge that the selection contest for choosing the entry to Eurovision is Sweden's most popular TV show. And like, it's not just it's not just one evening. It's like stretches over like all of February and March. It is literally Mello is like the most popular TV show in Sweden. And then obviously that extends to Eurovision. And like, not just that, but if you win Mello in Sweden, 
your basic your career is set you are famous you are a famous musician in sweden you will have a you, you can have like a full-on career just based off mellow and then like if you if you go to eurovision that's seen as like it launches your career the the system for picking a mellow winner is very similar to the system for picking a eurovision winner it's all got you've got juries you've got public votes all of this so they kind of have this very well developed system which is kind of designed to emulate eurovision which is one of the reasons behind sweden Sweden's like I think Sweden are maybe second out of all countries in Europe for Eurovision wins behind Ireland. What what about the Swedish entry? Does it stand a chance? Bookmakers have got it kind of pretty high up on the list. I think a lot of people were saying it could be top three um, behind Ukraine and Italy. I don't know if we'll win. I think Ukraine's probably going to win, but I think we've got a good chance of coming top five. We're going to turn now to immigration and we're going to look at how the political consensus in Sweden has become a lot less welcoming to immigrants in recent years. First, we're going to listen to an interview with uh, Tuva Hovamir, a public policy expert at the Liberal Forest think tank. I spoke to her earlier this week about how public attitudes to immigration in Sweden have changed over time. Let's hear what she has to say. Well, if we look back just 30 years ago, uh, well, the, already then Sweden welcomed a large number of asylum seekers due to the Yugoslav Wars, which with its peak in 1992, where we had over 80,000 asylum seekers that year. And at that time, we also saw at the same time an increase in right-wing nationalism with the party Ny Demokrati, who got elected into the Swedish parliament in 1991. But they only stayed one term, though, so they weren't that um, uh, long-lived. In the 1994 national election, they didn't get enough votes to stay in the parliament. But we could see already then a backlash after a vast increase in refugees and asylum seekers. And this is not a new phenomenon uh, in these days. So we could see that kind of tendencies already back then. But when we entered the 21st century, public opinion towards migration became more and more positive over the years, especially during the liberal uh, right um, government from 2006 to 2014, uh, Alliansen. We had many reforms on the immigration policies, especially one great reform with the liberalization of our labor migration laws, but also when it came to some small liberalizations of the asylum regulation as well. But during these years, where these liberalizations happened, we also saw the right-wing nationalist party, Sweden Democrats, come into the parliament in Sweden. So we also saw a surge in right-wing populism and nationalism also in the public opinion, mainly reflected, of course, in the their election results. They came into the parliament and has continued to grow in the national elections since. And then, of course, the 2015 refugee crisis happened. And after that, the public debate and attitudes towards migration has remained restrictive since and to this day. And the temporary asylum laws regulations is now permanent, actually, as asylum law as of last summer. And where do you see the debate going in the in the coming months with the election coming up this year? Besides the question of asylum policy, One of the biggest uh, fights I will think we will see in the immigration issues the upcoming years after this election, uh, I predict the labor migration policy in Sweden to be up for debate since the two major parties in Sweden both wanted to be restricted in different ways. I just want to explain what they want. The Mm -hmm. Social Democrats basically want 
uh, to reinstate the policy that uh, uh, that was before the reform in 2008, where labor migration was only allowed in the sectors or industries where there was a lack of workforce. And the ones who decided or could measure if there was a lack of workforce was the unions and the government. And the moderate party wants a restriction that says that labor migration will only be allowed if the salary is at least at approximately 27 thousand Swedish krona, which could mean that a lot of labor migration that we have today, which we also need today, like berry picking or workforce that don't need that high of education, like people at restaurants and, uh, and hotel workers, those aren't high in Sweden, that it would measure up to this this level. And what concerns me is that when these proposals came, the one from Social Democrats was now just in late of April that they came with this, uh, this proposal, is that I don't see the defensive reactions from liberal politicians who support the liberal labor migration policy today, as I would expect. And uh, this is concerning, because I think that many still sees immigration and being pro-migration as something dangerous due to the public opinion. And it might mean that the fight remain in the liberal uh, labor migration law that we have today won't be as great as I would hope it to be. That was Tova Hovamir from the 4S think tank. Now, in 2015, as she touched on, the consensus was that Sweden needed to give shelter to refugees fleeing the war in Syria. Now, seven years later, and with millions of refugees from Ukraine fleeing to mostly neighbouring countries in Europe, where would you say that we are in terms of the consensus, James? Well, I think a lot of European countries' attitudes towards receiving people from Ukraine has changed that debate about migration quite, quite significantly. With this being on our doorstep, with it being caused by Russia, you know, and some would say because Ukrainians are European, and some would infer a kind of racism in this reasoning, that there's been much more openness and sympathy towards Ukrainians and a much and a greater willingness to, um, to, to accept uh, significant numbers of refugees from Ukraine. But at the same time, I think when you look at, still when you look at other forms of immigration, you're still seeing um, you know, clamp down on labour migration. You're still seeing, you're still, still seeing a, a move towards less generous rules on labour migration. There are three parties that have a more liberal attitude to migration now, the Centre Party, the Greens and the Left Party. But the other parties that have been more liberal on migration issues before, particularly the Moderates, and the Liberal Party uh, have now very much gone over to a much more restrictive view on migration. And the Social Democrats, absolutely, they're the crucial party that really decides where Sweden's going to go in all of this, because they are they are by far the largest party, and they've been the governing party for the last eight years. So of the former centre-right alliance parties, only the centre, as you say, remains largely pro-immigration after the Liberals chose to side with the moderates and Christian Democrats who've taken a harder line on immigration. Richard, do you think the Centre Party leader, Annie Love, will stick to her guns and continue to argue for liberal immigration policies? I think she has to. I think she has to. And she staked her entire leadership on on not governing with Sweden Democrats and not taking part of a coalition that has the backing of the Sweden Democrats. And the reason for that is because of the Sweden Democrats immigration policy. So for her, the immigration question is absolutely central to all of the choices she's made for the party for the last two elections. So I think it's really interesting to see her in this election because she came out with this big opinion piece in DN that was very sort of stridently making the case against this kind of more restrictive, not, not, not just policy, but also the rhetoric 
rhetoric that's coming from the other right-wing parties on immigration. She wrote, wrote this big opinion piece and then in the in the kind of election debates, the party leader debates, she's come out as the sort of the staunchest defender of a more liberal approach to immigration and, and, and integration. And I think it's really interesting because previously she was still part, that position still put her more or less in the consensus. But now she's looking kind of isolated. It's her and the Greens and Green Party leader Mayor Stenevy who are really making a sort of positive case for immigration. Even Nushi Dagestar, who's trying to win the sort of social democrat, industrial, you know, old school social democrat strongholds in the north. She's sort of toning down the left party's uh, support for immigration as well. So, so I think it's only these two. And because Sweden's a sort of consensus society, it changes the whole atmosphere of the debate to have only one person making this position. In a way, she's in the position that Jimmy Orkerson was 10 years ago, where he's the kind of lone dissenting voice. So I think it's, it's, it's really interesting that the switch there's been. It's interesting what you say about the industrial kind of left strongholds as well, because my, my husband used to work as a machinist uh, in kind of social... like. What used to be a social democrat stronghold, you know, ELO, the the big union organization, like they kind of always counted on workers, kind of manual labor workers voting for them. But he was saying that everyone votes Sweden Democrat in in the workshop that he used to work in. They've completely lost all their votes to the Sweden Democrats. And I think that must be because of immigration. So that must be kind of what Nushi's knew she's trying to win back. From an electoral point of view, if we're thinking about, as most politicians do, maximising your share of the vote, this kind of works for her in the sense that it means that she has that, she's the only one representing the former view of the entire kind of centre-right coalition. So those who dislike the previous part of the centre-right coalition, the you know, moderates, the, the Christian Democrats and the Liberals, have gone over to sort of doing deals with the Sweden Democrats, to accepting Sweden Democrat support and promoting a much stricter immigration policy, not just on asylum, but also on labour migration. She can at least then rely on a solid base of support among those voters who dislike this change in, in policy. If you're further right than the Social Democrats, but you're pro-immigration, and now you've only got one party you can vote for. Right. One of the people she likes to compare herself to, I'm not sure he would accept the comparison, is Emmanuel Macron. You know, this this idea that, that sort of kind of liberal on... Um, migration and liberal on economic policy, and that way, sort of being in the mid in in the middle of politics, in the centre of politics, but in a very specific kind of way. I mean, the party that that, that they would love to be, I think, is is um, the Social Liberal Party in Denmark, Radical Venstre, who, who who've who've been who've every government for for decades they have extracted, like like Annie Lyft did in the January Agreement, you know, amazing policy concessions. They they basically get what they want every time because they're the the party that can swing both ways. And they're, they're very much of the radical centre in that they have big reforming ideas, but they're not kind of extreme on, uh, in terms of, you know, tr- traditional sort of left-right divisions. But they are radical. You know, they do want to change things. I think she just wants to be bigger than new boy in from Bora. From Bo- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like this, li- this little centrist party that ends up providing the prime minister um, and and changing the country, I think, yeah. Yeah, there was talk about that last time around that uh, she could end up as prime minister. But she yeah. didn't in the end. No, and but, you know, it's, al- it's always a possibility, you know, when the deadlock lasts sufficiently long, there's always a possibility for some for, for some party like that to provide the solution. I think both the moderates and the social democrats would 
Well, it would be over their dead bodies. So while Sweden is getting on tougher on immigration, um, as we've been saying, there is some good news for non-EU workers in a law due to come into force at the start of next month. Can you tell us about that, Becky? It's this whole work permit law they're bringing at the end of this month, which is meant to kind of cut down on the amount of talent deportations that are happening. So that's people that get deported for minor administrative errors. But another part of this this law, which hasn't really been highlighted, is that it's ending the so-called seven-year rule. So previously, if you'd had two two-year work permits in Sweden in a seven-year period. That meant you couldn't apply for a third one or a fourth one. That meant So you could have maximum two two-year work permits in a seven-year period, which was kind of a big issue for lots of talented IT workers in particular, because you would maybe be granted a two-year work permit, you'd come to Sweden, you'd work on a project that was finished after six months, and then you'd go back to your home country, which meant that you could only do that twice in a seven-year period. After that, you were kind of locked out of the work market. I think the, the issue is is that the, the the idea is that then you would, instead of having another work permit, you would get permanent residency. Yeah, but it, you if you've been doing short contracts, you won't fulfil the um, yeah. requirements for Because for permanent residency, I think you have to have worked for four years in the last seven years, which obviously you have if you've got two two-year work permits and you've been in Sweden for that entire time. But if you've been granted two two-year work permits and you've only done six months out of each of them, you can't get permanent residency either. So you're kind of in a bit of a bind there. You can't get a permanent residency to stay in Sweden and you can't get another work permit to kind of earn earn up this, this four-year this four requirement. Um, so they've got rid of that, which is good. So, so yeah, you spoke, uh, Richard, you spoke to a lawyer who said that a third of her case is related to the seven-year rule, which is going to make a big difference to people, which hasn't really been published because I think it is actually a major change for a lot of people. It'll make it a lot easier for people to come to Sweden on shorter contracts. I think calling it a rule is slightly a misnomer because I'm not sure it, it, it's more a practice. It's how the migration agency has been interpreting the law. And it's not something that it, it, it's it's not... There isn't, there isn't a sort of... There, there isn't a document saying this is the seven-year rule. It's, 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 it's the practice. And, and this... Um, and, and under the new work permit law, it says that they should be more sort of forward looking. And so they should, you know, you should see whether you meet the conditions to fulfill your requirements for a work permit this time. But that, but they won't go back seven years into your past and go, well, actually, in 2017, you failed to get this insurance and, you know, two work permits ago. Yeah, exactly. And that, for that reason, mm-hmm. we're not going to renew your work permit. Yeah, this was another aspect of the seven year rule is that it if you'd had a work permit application that was incorrect within a seven-year period, they would say, okay, no, you can't have a new work permit, which meant that you kind of had an embargo for seven years just because something was wrong on your paperwork. And even if you've got a completely new a completely new agreement here, a new job, a new employer, everything, that, that kind of hung over you like a dark cloud until the seven-year period was up and you could come back. Yeah, if you want to, you can just carry on applying for, for short-term work permits. You don't have to apply for a permanent residency anymore. And that brings us to the end of this week's Sweden in Focus. Thank you for listening and thank you as always to my guests James Savage, Richard Orange and Becky Waterton and of course Tuva Hovamir. Please check the episode description notes in your app and click on the survey there to share your feedback. And we'll be back again next Saturday. Until then, take care. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. 
make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.